0: Really jazzed to be here. Um, Whenever I come and speak in different churches, I never really feel uh, I'm in a place full of strangers because we have an eternity of commonalities, literally in Christ Jesus. But it's just really refreshing that I actually know a really good handful of people here, and uh, and and I know that you all had good experiences with me because because that's what I was feeling too. And I just want to say thank you. I'm just really excited also because I know what I'm going to talk to you about. Um, I uh, some of my hobby horses are I talk about leadership discipleship and stewardship and oftentimes pastors would have me come into their churches so I can wear the black hat and talk about money so that's what I'm here to do okay and want to just uh, just open up by saying you know think about all the kinds of relationships that you have I mean, think of those who you're close to, like your family, your best friend, your dog, or people that you don't love too much, like murderers, terrorists, or your boss. There are are people that you love and people that you hate. There are people that you know very well and people that you have never met before. There are parents, teachers, siblings, Friends and enemies, rivals, backstabbers, and the undead. So when you put all these people that you know in your relational network and grade them and how close they are on this continuum, like on one end, people that you love, supporters, allies, confidants, you know, people that you pray God will bless. And then on the other hand, people that you hate people who drive slow in the left lane, put on mascara while they're driving, you know, people that you pray that God will curse, right? You know, when you have all these different people here, you know, I want to ask you this question. Are most of these relationships on the close and intimate end of the spectrum, or are they more on the I-can't-stand-you-hate-your-guts end of the spectrum? I'll submit this to you. I believe the bulk of many of our relationships is neither, it's sort of like the middle of the road. It's neither extreme. It's like when the UPS guy comes and rings the doorbell, you're not going to greet him, you know, with a hug and a vase of flowers, but you're not going to greet him with a shotgun and a pit bull either. You know, that's because most of our relationships, you know, are on neither end. You know, there are a few on each extreme, but the bulk really is in the middle. So I have two questions for you. One is, on the continuum of intimate ally and closest friend, or public enemy number one? Where is God? The second question is, well, how do you think God feels about that? About being sort of like in the middle, maybe a mediocre kind of character for much of the week. My desire, whenever I talk about the topic of money, is to move us on the continuum from mediocre middle to intimacy and closeness and because intimacy is something that is important to many of us we want intimacy with christ you will be pleased to know that the manner in which you handle your money has a direct impact on your relationship with christ i'll say that again the manner in which you handle your money has a direct impact on your relationship with christ not convinced Luke 16, 11 says, You have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth. Well, then who will trust you with true riches? Unfortunately, the financial practices of most believers, many of us, are in sharp contrast to that principles that we find in Scripture. Most Christians have been taught how to handle just 10% of what to do with your money, mainly in the area of giving. What that means is, by default we are surrendering 90% of principles what to do with our money, and we are taking example directly from Hollywood. In fact, it's my observation that as a pastor and as a counselor and a critic of my own tendencies, there is more blindness and rationalization and unclear thinking about money than anything else in the church. So much so that if the Bible were written today and judged by what it has to say about money and possessions, I believe it would never be published. In fact, if it were published, it would be so mercilessly slammed by its critics, it would never see a second printing. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, if we prefer to think the way the world does about money, This verse says, you need not change a thing. But if you really wish to go deeper into discipleship, please turn with me to Luke 18. In Luke 18, starting from verse 1, I'm sorry, verse 18, it reads, A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these things I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times more in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to be still and know that you are God. We thank you for your word and for the power that it has to change lives. Help us to see our brokenness and our true spiritual poverty because of the empty shell existence in this culture to live for the blessings rather than the blesser. We want closeness with you, and we want you to open the door to discipleship, especially when it comes to the area of our money and possessions. We ask, Lord, that you would bless the speaker of the word, the hearer of the word, And the doer of the word, and we ask this not because we are good people, but because you are a good God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Now I'm going to share some things about myself, not because I like to hear myself talk, but I want you to feel good about where the information is coming from. I actually, uh, I speak a lot about money, and it's not because I was originally in the financial sector in my career, I was actually in medicine. So I did pre-med, medical school, did medical work out in East Africa. That was the year, in 94, they had the Hutu-Tutsi genocide. Remember the Hotel Rwanda incident? I thought to myself, self, what a fantastic opportunity to kind of roll up my sleeves and slap on some gloves and do some real medicine. So I was there in East Africa for about six weeks. Life-changing experience. But when I had come back, I had found out I was diagnosed with malaria. I was sick with malaria for about two years. I almost died twice. And when I had gotten better in a very miraculous kind of way, so I have no complaints, I had this epiphany. I just realized, my goodness, I think I've had enough of disease. What do you think? So I left the medical field and went into the financial sector because I just really believe there are very few choices that we make as adults that does not involve money. So as long as you get money under stewardship, or under lordship, it has a multiplying effect in all the other areas of a person's life. So I started in management at a company called Aon Hewitt. I did 401k plan management, pension consulting, pension special calculations. All the clients they had put me in front of were all their Fortune 200 firms. But after a few years, I became really, really discontent with the work. I got tired of working with large impersonal institutions, and I just, you know, I... I never saw the end result of my work. It was the same thing in and out, day in and day out. So I started a practice as a financial advisor, working with families and small businesses. 2006, I was named the Illinois Advisor of the Year. 2009, I became an executive partner at my previous firm. I am now a director at my firm now. So it's just completely refreshing to be able to talk about money outside the office. So thank you for letting me be part of this process in your life. But most importantly, for me, I am married, family of seven. So Sorry, ladies. And uh, I live in, live in Naperville. Why are you laughing? I live in Naperville. Okay. So that's a little bit about me. But I'm really here to talk about you. 1 Peter 3.15. It says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. So as you take an audit of yourself in your career, or in your family or social life, if no one is asking you for the reason for the hope that you have, maybe it's because you have the same hope they do. Or at least they perceive that. I mean, exactly how are you a new person as a result of your relationship with Christ? I mean, mean, does it even matter on a daily basis? This whole question of does it matter reminds me of a story about the Crusades. Now, The Crusades was a holy war. And oftentimes, they would run out of regular soldiers, so they would try to enroll the support of prisoners with the promise that if you went on this campaign and survived, you can buy back your freedom. So a lot of prisoners wanted to take that vacation. So because it was a holy war, they were required to be baptized. And this is how they would do it. They would be baptized hold out their sword to the side, let the water come down on them, but they would hold out the sword as if to say, sure, God could have my life, no problem, but the manner in which I wield my sword in battle is a manner in which I will decide for myself, thank you very much. And that is the way many believers treat their money. You know, many believers come to the Bible for comfort, not for financial instruction. If we want to know more about money, we'll pick up the Wall Street Journal or Kiplinger's or Bloomberg. But, you know, let, let scripture concern itself with all that is spiritual and heavenly. Let God talk to us about love, grace, and fellowship. And let the rest of us talk about money and possessions. Thank you very much. Actually, the Bible has a lot to say about money and possessions. Reminds me of a story of... of um, a bunch of survivors on a desert island. They finally got themselves all situated, got their campfire going, and they're all kind of sitting around the campfire, you know, all sunken. And then finally one man in a suit said, you know, I make about $20,000 a month. People were kind of just looking around and, you know, pretending they didn't hear what he said. He said it a little bit louder. Hey, guys, I make $20,000 a month. Finally, one of the men said, Hey, dude, I don't care how much money you make. We're in a desert island. It's not going to do us any good. And he's like, No, man, you don't get it. I make $20,000 a month. I'm a Christian, and I tithe. My pastor will find me. <laughs> now, you know... The Bible really does have a lot to say about money and possessions, you know. There are actually 2,350 verses in scripture that deal directly with the topic of money. 17% of Jesus' teaching, you know, was about money, more than the topics of heaven and hell combined. Just the sheer enormity of the teachings of money is more than any back or brain can burden You know, the the topic just banshee screams it for our attention. I mean, the way I think about it is, how could the Bible's author and editor justify devoting two times as many verses to money than to faith and prayer? I mean, considering all the things that we really want to know, why would the Savior of the world spend over 15% of his recorded words on this one subject? I mean, what does he know about money that we don't. Well, consider Luke 19, if you don't mind all these passages. Luke 19, starting from verse 1. It reads, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. And if I cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. Jesus said to him, "Today salvation has come to this house. This man, too, is the son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. When Zacchaeus said that he would give half his possessions to the poor and pay back four times the amount that he cheated— Notice, Jesus did not merely say, boy, good job. He said, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus judged the reality of this man's salvation, not just on his willingness to give money, like my willingness to put money in the offering plate, but Jesus based this man's salvation on Zacchaeus' cheerfulness to part with his money. Now, juxtapose this with the rich young ruler back in Luke 18, this decent, hard-working, enterprising young professional. Jesus asked, you know, he asked Jesus, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus recited the commandments. The man said he kept them all, of course. Then Jesus delivered his bottom line. And this one command proved to be the bottleneck. It proved to be the watershed moment to this man's eternity. Verse 22 says, Sell everything and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Really, Jesus? I mean, talk about dropping the ball. I mean, this could have been a kumbaya slam dunk moment. You could have had a follower. Why would you say something like that? I mean, now we, in our modern practicality, probably would have handled this convert in a very different way. First, we probably would have high-fived the rich young ruler for his interest in church. We might then tell him, just believe, ask Jesus into your life, and then, you know, you don't really have to do anything because it's all grace, right? He would have said, okay, I believe, because it it wouldn't cost him anything. We would have considered him to be a follower of Christ. I mean, right? I mean, think how edified we would feel. You know, this, this, uh, this celebrity is now um, greatly enhancing the kingdom of God. There would soon be books and magazine articles about him. He would be invited to radios and, and do, you know, by, by talk show hosts to do shows. He'd be invited to share his testimony at big churches and, and national conferences all over the country. All these things likely making him a richer young ruler. And lacking our sophisticated 21st century knowledge on how to close a conversion, Jesus said something that cost him a valuable convert. He said to him, sell everything you have and give to the poor. I mean, Jesus, what kind of loving savior are you? It's like, In verse 23, it says, when the young man heard this, he became very sad because he was wealthy, and the results were disastrous, so it seems. After losing a follower, a man so sincere, so sincere that he was saddened to be turned away, I mean, the disciples were just astonished. They did not understand the barrier that wealth presents to spiritual birth and to spiritual growth. And apparently, neither do we. Notice, Jesus didn't tell the young man to start a trust fund and give 10% to the church. If he was an obedient Jew, he was already doing that. Jesus stopped him dead in his tracks and asked him, you know, give up everything and then follow me. Now, I'll say this. Jesus does not, and he did not tell his disciples to liquidate everything they had and give away those things to the poor. It is not wrong to have wealth. Missionaries love people with a lot of money. But Jesus has a way of looking into the heart of a man, and he knew that this man's God was money. Money, I like to think, is an indicator. I mean, how many of us here have had the very disconcerting experience of being late for a meeting, and you're on your route and then you see something flashing on your dashboard, and it says, check engine. I mean, talk about disrupting your route. I mean, your transit just has a snag. What does this check engine light mean? Why is it flashing at me? Well, money is, is an indicator. What that means is none of you will pause on your drive and think to yourself, my goodness, there is something wrong with that light bulb. The fact that it's flashing means it's an indicator to a problem deeper within the mechanism of your vehicle. Money is used the same way in Scripture. The topic of money is never about money. It's an indicator of what's going on inside someone's heart. How do I know this? Well, because in Malachi and throughout the Gospels, money is always used as the indicator of where someone's heart is. Just as Zacchaeus' eagerness to part with his money was Jesus' indication of his salvation, so too Jesus judged the rich young ruler's true spiritual condition by his unwillingness to part with it. Now, Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler, those cases are not isolated. I mean, consider this exchange with John the Baptist in Luke 3. Starting from verse 10, it reads. What should we do then? the crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share the one with who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, What should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, What should we do? He replied, Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely be content with your pay now when people ask john the baptist you know what things should we do to produce fruit in keeping with salvation notice you know he told them to share their clothes with the poor he told tax collectors not to pocket extra money he told the soldiers not to extort money and to be content with their pay Notice, no one asked John about money and possessions. They just asked him, what do we need to do to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Yet all his answers had to do with money and possessions. Mark 12, starting with verse 41, further corroborates this idea. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a few cents. In the account of the poor widow, Mark writes that Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put. Notice, it didn't say Jesus just happens to be there. No, he deliberately watched. He wanted to see what was happening. He wanted to know what people were giving. He wanted it disclosed. He was close enough to see all the action, all the amounts in mouth-watering detail, even two tiny coins, even to identify them as copper. And Jesus was interested enough in what people were giving to make an object lesson out of it. You guys, true heart change requires true fiscal change. You know, I've worked a lot with young adults, and it's very easy for them to drop three or $400 on their Friday night. You know, all of these events, all of these accounts, should show that handling money is really a litmus test to our true character. It is an index of our spiritual life. Our stewardship of money and possessions becomes now the story of your life. It defines our life. It's what I like to call, it is congealed life. Now, does anyone here know what the word congealed means? Okay, two of you. Okay, it is an SAT word. The word congealed means to take something that was without form and make it gelatinous. Take something that's theoretical and make it tangible. Money is congealed life because for most people who have a job, they will spend the better part of their day spending their blood, sweat, time, and tears working for their boss. And at the end of the month, their boss is going to give them a paycheck and say, this is what your life has been meant to me this past month. And for many of us, that's a pretty depressing thought, right? We just exchange our life literally for that paycheck. So if we really believe that God owns all of our life, that means we don't get first dibs. There are very few choices that we make as adults that does not involve money. So once money is under lordship, it has a multiplying effect in all the other areas of a person's life. I mean, the divorce statistic is always talked about from the pulpit. I mean, more than half of marriages in America will end in divorce, but, you know, 80% of them will cite financial causes or comfort as the reason for it. Because of this, if money is cited as playing the role in ending marriages, well then stewardship of money can play a great opportunity in salvaging many of them. Because in this country, let's face it, a man will leave his wife before he will leave his money. Because of that, God must therefore examine our money. Now, if all of these accounts of Jesus and his disciples with money, if it was all true back then, well, doesn't it have special implications for us living today, who live in a world of unparalleled affluence? I mean, those of us who live in a time where we enjoy all of the comforts and conveniences that King Solomon never dreamed. I mean, we who live in a country where the poverty level exceeds the average standard of living of every country, past and present. I mean, think of, think of um, the poverty level in the U.S. People who live in poverty in the U.S., 95% of them have a color TV and cable. 75% of them air conditioning and they own their car 40% of them own their home outright that's the poverty level consider a man or woman working from the age of 25 to 65 only making $25,000 per year i mean never mind benefits like employer health insurance and tax diversified employer plans and you know consumer price index and cola adjustments and compounding interest and savings. Never mind Social Security, but literally, never mind that. You know? <laughs> Even without the perks, the person with modest income by U.S. standards will receive $1 million. He or she would have managed a small fortune. Romans fourteen twelve says, So then each of us will give an account of ourselves before God. One day. One day, everyone must answer the questions, where did it all go? What did I spend it on? What has been accomplished for eternity with all this wealth? This should make many of us suppose that what we do with our money is our own business feel terribly uncomfortable. It is painfully obvious that God considers it his business. He does not apologize for watching with intense interest what we do with the money he's entrusted to us. The Bible does not apologize for letting us know who we work for. It does not hesitate in letting you know that all you touch belongs to someone else. All you own in an absolute sense is absolutely nothing. All God owns in an absolute sense is absolutely everything. And the ultimate proof of that is one day you will leave it or it will leave you. Furthermore, sometimes more can be learned from the passages that we ignore than, the, than those that we underline. You know, the Bible contains such an arsenal of verses on money and possessions that just keep salvo-firing at us as if we are cannon fodder. I mean, no wonder C.S. Lewis calls God the great transcendental interferer. In his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, Randy Alcorn writes, God has this very annoying habit of stepping into our lives even when we've pulled the welcome mat and bolted the door. He really knows how to throw a great party, but he also knows how to spoil one the more we allow ourselves to grapple with these unsettling passages, the more we are pierced. And I must admit, I darely share, I always share these discomforts as well, too. And you may be thinking, well, you know, I'd rather not deal with these issues. I'm rather content with what I'm doing. But are you really content? I mean, are there any of us who truly know Christ, who have the spirit living in us, really content when we haven't fully considered our Savior's words. Comfortable, perhaps, complacent, certainly, but not content. I have to live with this nagging feeling deep inside that when Jesus called people to follow him, Jesus actually had more in mind than what I'm experiencing. Especially when even a casual reading of the New Testament shows money to be paramount, when it comes to the topic of discipleship. I don't want to miss out on what he has for me. And if he has really touched your life, I don't think you want to miss out either. Perhaps, you know, I might be able to do some spiritual acrobatics and and feel better about myself by trying to avoid this responsibility, as if this were some kind of minor or obscure teaching in scripture. But, you know, I could just say to myself, I just didn't get it. I didn't understand it. Lord, it was really unclear. You didn't really give me much to work on regarding this study of money. But how can we plead ignorance on the topic of money and possessions when God is likely to say to us, Are you kidding me? What more do you want me to disclose about the topic of money and possessions that's already written? I mean, was your problem that these passages were unclear, or was your problem that passages were too clear? In my firm, um, something that we boast about in the marketplace is there's this list called the Forbes 100 Richest People in America. Of the 100 richest billionaires in America, 25 of them are my advisor's clients. So it's a pretty big share. Uh, billionaires, they're, they're eccentric. I mean, when you get to that level, you know, things happen to you. And they're not always the the best people to work with. I was working with one who was a believer. He claimed to be a believer, so I had to give him the benefit of the doubt. And he was talking about $10 million that he had in his safe in his bedroom in cash. And I just really wanted to challenge him. Well, you know what? We should start some trust funds and give to some charities. Because he said he wanted to have a discipleship relationship with me. So I opened up the topic of money immediately, and I said, well, if you can't really find charities to give to, if there's none on your mind, give me your $10,000, I'll put it in trust, I will choose the charities. He balked at that, and then he started throwing his weight around and talking about all the other things that he contributes to in his business. You know, feeling good about himself. And I just paused. I listened to the whole thing, and I just said, you know, I have a definition of what a rich man is. Do you know what a rich man is? And he said, no, what is it? A rich man is nothing but a poor man with money. And you know, I felt really good about that. <laughs> I was patting myself in the back for saying that, and I told my wife, and but then that really dawned on me. I really felt convicted. You know, in the, um, in the financial sector, sometimes there is this creeping effect where you're trained so much to look at companies with large assets, or you look at people as assets under management. You start looking for whales. And you start putting price, like number signs in front of people. And it is a creeping effect. And I was just reminded that no amount of money has ever made anyone rich. And you do not become rich unless you enrich others. I was also convicted that, you know, it's really easy for people with, with wealth. To avoid accountability, right? If you have a six or seventh figure income, and if you are if you are in a leadership position at your work, and if you speak in the community, people leave you alone. And that's why God says so much about money. The the central focus of this whole study of stewardship is attitude. It's not about money. I mean, God doesn't want our money. I mean, it's it's not principle, but principles. It's not about securities. It's about security. It's not about real estate. It's about our real estate. It's not about wills and trusts, but it's about God's will and our trust in him. It starts with attitude. When we look at our money only as money, not in light of its impact on eternity, we walk away with this fuzzy and nearsighted vision that results in a fuzzy and nearsighted lifestyle of decision-making. Our study of stewardship reinforces the reality that we are made only for one person in one place. That person is Jesus, and that place is heaven. This should influence our approach on money. If it does, then the door to Christian discipleship is flung open. It's a place where following Christ is not merely a comfort, but it is now an electrifying dynamic. A question that we need to be intellectually honest about as we check our attitude is, am I a materialist? Am I a materialist? Now my knee-jerk reaction is no. I'm not a materialist. But let's really d- dive into that. Note the question has no bearing on how little or how much money you have. In other words, is your perspective, for the most part, limited to the material? Are you trusting in your senses and your resources and your abilities when you come into financial struggle? I and mean, are you reducing God to your resources and abilities? versus trusting in his character. Well, then no wonder you are the way you are. I mean, are you a materialist? Do you spend more time thinking about people to impact or things to get? Is it about others or is it about relief? As I imagine a positive future, is it about things to have or others with eternity in mind? Also, you know, the wealthiest person in this room may not be the biggest materialist. I mean, the perceived need for money has made people think more about money than those who actually have it. There is no direct correlation between wealth and materialism. Lastly, I want you to, to take this part with you. Follow this progression. God owns all the cattle in a thousand Hills. And money is often the primary competitor for lordship in a believer's heart. So when God chooses to touch your life in the area of money, all he's trying to do is get your attention. Because of course he can provide, right? That's a fantastic opportunity for an amen. Yeah, of course God can provide. Yeah. Well, What does it mean for us? Nothing enters your life unless it is allowed or decreed by God. Nothing. Therefore, if God allows financial difficulty in your life, it should result in your contentment. If it doesn't, it's a red flag. After all, if something happens in in our life, it's all for our good, right? It's all for his glory, Either it's an indication or some kind of way to expose a character flaw, or it's a furnace to refine your faith and make you more like Christ. Either way, it's good. So whenever we cry out, you know, God, where did you go? I really want to be close. I want this intimacy. You know, God just simply responds, where did I go? What do you mean? Where? I, I just showed up. And that's good news all day long. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? Lord, we really want to learn how to pray and ask. We want to ask, no longer give us wisdom to manage our money. Instead, we want to ask, give us wisdom so we can manage your money. We pray that you would open the door in this fellowship to discipleship. Open the door to intimacy with you. We pray, Lord, that you would truly, again, bless the speaker of the word, the hearer of the word, and the doer of the word. To him who is able to keep us from falling and present us before his glorious presence without fault and with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be power, glory, majesty, and dominion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.